Hi there and welcome back to another edition of Book Around with me Dominic Goulden. Today we are heading over to Iran to cover The Blind Owl by Sadek Hediyak, a classic Iranian horror story from the 1930s. This is our spooky Halloween episode, or rather it's one of our spooky Halloween episodes, I'll explain a little bit more later, but this book has everything. I've only read it this year and it's amazing. It's instantly one of my favourites. Um, it just has so much stuff in there that I like. It's got a lot of crazy, spooky, surreal stuff going on. Um, so let's get into it and I'll tell you all about it. Okay, friends. First things first, happy spooky season if you celebrate it. If you don't, just hope that you're having a good day. Um, so, in that little intro section there, I mentioned that we are doing more than one book for our spooky season. Um, so, this is our main one, okay? So, The Blind Owl is, is going to be our main one because this is a new book. Well, it's not a new book. It's from the 1930s, but it's new to me, and I read it especially to cover on the podcast, and I'm so glad I did because uh, it's, it's one of the best books I've read in a long, long time. I, I'm looking forward to telling you all about it. Um, but the, I'm going to cover at least one other book for Halloween. Uh, we might go a little more conventional, you know, we might dip into um, the Western world. When I talk about the Western world, I, I basically mean the UK or, or America. Um, the reason that I try and avoid those countries on this podcast, if possible, is it's book around. We're looking around the world. Of course, that does mean we can look at the UK, we can look at the US, but I feel like a, an awful lot is already known about the literature from those places. So occasionally I will dip in there if I feel there is a particular author or book that you need to know about who you might not know about. Um, but generally we're, we're, we'll be keeping it. If we are in the Western world, we'll try and keep it in places where you may not have read the literature as much. Um, but with that said, let's let's jump back into The Blind Owl. So a little bit of context about this first. The first thing that struck me when I opened the book was that there was a note in there saying that publication of this book is banned in Iran. Now, I assume it's not anymore. I don't know. Uh, it was under the uh, leadership of Reza Shah at the time, and he disapproved of the content of the book. Now, I don't know um why you know is, is the reason there's a lot of stuff going on in this book that's quite edgy especially for the 1930s there is um necrophilia in there there is is blasphemy in there uh there's homosexuality in there which you know in 2020 is hopefully not a taboo subject but in the 1930s in iran it quite possibly was um there's murder in there there's a lot of really weird stuff going on and a lot of really dark stuff. I mean, it's a horror book, okay? So I don't know exactly the reason that Reza Shah decided this book was not allowed to be published, but it, it was. So um, Sadek Hediyat, he had to go to India and he had the book published in Bombay. Um, so now if you get the, the uh, book, you're probably getting the Bombay edition. Um, that's the, the one that I uh, picked up recently to cover. Okay, so let's get into the book. So what is it about? Um, the book is about a narrator uh, whose name we don't get. 
Um, it's just all told in the first person and the narrator never explains who he is. A little bit like the Boxman, this is a bit of amusing on identity. So there is some fluidity around identity in this in this book. Some some changing and some confusion around who's who and it, it's done in quite a clever way. Um, so when we meet the character at first, before we learn anything about his circumstances, he kind of gives us this philosophy about how do we know if anything's really real or tangible and it's not all just kind of shadows and illusions. It's very much like Plato's cave if, you, if you're into philosophy and, and if you know anything about Plato. If you don't, just to quickly summarise that theory, um, Plato, very, very great uh, Greek philosopher, said that he, you know, we don't necessarily know that what we see and do on a day-to-day -day basis is real. Uh, it could all just be very clever mental stimulus and it could just be that we are sat in a cave watching shadows play out in front of us and we're thinking that that's real life, which is quite a trippy thought. But the more you more you think about it, the more you sit with that, the more you think, ah, okay, I can see it. I'm not necessarily saying that I believe in that, but it's an interesting thought. And, and you kind of need to, to grapple with that a little bit if you're going to understand this book, okay? So then it jumps into the character's circumstances and uh, he is uh, a painter of pen cases. Um, that's his job and that, that becomes fairly important in the first part of the book. Um, it seems like a, an odd choice of a job for a protagonist, but um, I'll explain why that's important in a moment. So he tells you about his house. He seems to live in a fairly modest house on the edge of um, some Iranian city. So he can see and hear other people, but we get the impression he's a little bit introverted or a little antisocial, and he, he tries to stay away from people where he can. Uh, a lot of the time when he mentions people, he mentions them as being um, quite annoying or, or bothering him, and he, he tries to stay away from them. Um, so he's painting these pen pots, um, and he sells them, um, and his, well, yeah, so let me just quickly tell you, so he paints these pen, uh, pen cases, and there's this particular design that he's perfected, uh, which is of an old man, um, who I think the old man is meant to look like a, a, a some sort of religious, um, person i'm not really sure if it's the islamic equivalent to like a priest or something like that I, I wasn't sure but something to do with religion like a wise religious old man and he's underneath uh, a cedar tree i think it was with his um one of his hands uh his left hand and his index finger on his lips while there is a woman dressed in black um handing a morning glory flower to him um and there's a lot of symbolism to unpick there but Basically, that's the image that is etched in this guy's mind, and he doesn't know why. Okay, so that's the first strange thing that happens in the book, is that he's obsessed with perfecting this image and reproducing it on everything, but he doesn't know why that's such an important image to him. He doesn't know where he's seen it. He's pretty sure it's not a memory from his real life. He can't remember having a dream of where he saw that, so he wonders where he's conjured up this image from. Okay, um, then... There's a bit where a family member, I think it's his uncle, uh, comes visiting who usually lives in India and I think he's offering to sell the, the pen cases in India. There's an interesting thing of where he's saying, I don't really 
know if it was my uncle, but I had no reason to dispute it. Like I hadn't seen my uncle since I was very young. So straight away we get this sort of strange unreliability in terms of identity. Oh, also he makes it very clear in the first few pages that he smokes a lot of opium. And, and that becomes increasingly important as the plot goes on. Got kind of my own theories about where the opium use comes in. But it gets mentioned a heck of a lot. So um, if this guy is not an opium addict, he is a, an opium enthusiast. Um, he, he certainly enjoys a good bit of opium. Um, okay, so then the first little bit of drama happens when he is going into his closet for something. And there's a hole in the wall that isn't normally there. And through this hole in the wall, he sees a cedar tree with an old man and a woman dressed in black giving him this flower. And it's exactly the image that he's been painting. And he thinks, wow, that's amazing. Um, and the old man starts doing this annoying, grating laugh, he describes it as. And he becomes filled with fear for some reason. And he won't look at it. And then it goes in very Edgar Allan Poe um, at this point and starts to... He becomes obsessed with the image and learning about it and he kind of locks himself in his house and doesn't want to leave because he's scared of the people that are outside underneath the tree. But then he also wants to go and meet them and, and find out what they are to him. And then anyway, it eventually builds up his, his confidence and he looks in the closet again and there was never a hole there. Um, so he, we start to see his, his sanity unraveling or uh, some surreal forces at work in the world. We're never quite sure if it's... If it's his faculties failing him or if something supernatural is going on we never quite know um this what i'm about to tell you sounds will sound quite heavily like spoilers but this all happens fairly early on in the first half of the book the book is not directly divided into two halves but there's a really significant event that happens about halfway through where I read this book in two sittings and basically this thing happens halfway through that was just so mental that I just, my mind basically melted and I just couldn't deal with it. So I put the book down, <laughs> went away and picked it up again um, just because I needed a, a bit of time to process what was going on. Um, so it starts off again, Edgar Allan Poe sort of thing and then eventually he finds this woman who he's become very obsessed with and he describes that he can like see the universe in her dark eyes and all of this kind of thing she never speaks to him um but eventually she just goes into his house and then just dies on the bed um and then he proceeds to uh proceeds to you know be become intimate with with her dead body uh that's not that's not a nice scene he's describing that there's worms all over her and flies and stuff um it's it's a very very odd scene but again there's this question of um his perception of time because he describes the woman as having been dead for a long time and potentially he's never he never knew her when she was alive so again we get all these these odd things um the, these kind of odd things that don't add up with with time and space in this book that just make it all the more surreal eventually he decides that even though he didn't kill her it's going to look very suspicious him just having this random dead woman in his house and he doesn't really know how to deal with it in terms of like a proper process. So he just thinks, okay, I'm just going to chop the body up and bury it, um, as as you do, I guess. Um, so he chops the body up and puts it in a suitcase. And then he finds the suitcase is too heavy to lift, um, which is probably some sort of metaphor or symbolism. Then the old man 
who was laughing underneath the cedar tree turns up um, and he makes a point. Every character gets this really vivid description. The old man is always mentioned as having a her lip uh, and two yellow teeth um, and a grating laugh. And that keeps getting mentioned. Um, now, what's important here, as you'll see as we go on in the description, the character's identities start to become fluid, but the people who they are meant to be let me try and explain this a little bit better basically I'll, I'll use the old man as an example so this old man at this moment in time as far as we know is just this mysterious old man from underneath the cedar tree and from the picture we don't really know the significance of him later on in a different scene where the narrator appears to have a different identity this old man becomes the narrator's father-in-law now he never acknowledges that it's the same person but he gives exactly the same description, her lip, two yellow teeth. I imagine if it was a film, you would have the same actor playing the person so that for the benefit of the audience, it's very clear that it's obviously the same person, even though the narrator doesn't seem to clock onto it. Um, and the same for the mysterious woman from the start. Um, she is mentioned in several other places um, in the book. Um, and again, it has this same kind of description about these dark eyes and I think she's the one where he describes her cheeks as being as red as the meat out of the front of the butcher's shop window. Um, he relates a lot of things to what's going on around his house so what you can see in the butcher's shop, uh, this peddler of words outside the front of the house and just people in his local street and he uses a lot of symbolism and metaphors around them but basically each character is represented through symbolism and description so even if they appear later on in a different role or with a different name, we still realise it's meant to be the same person because he keeps identical descriptions, so he keeps that imagery consistent. So if uh, there was a film and Robert De Niro is one character, and then at the end of the film another character comes in and the narrator doesn't know who it is, but it's still played by Robert De Niro, so the audience know it's the same person. Something like that. Um, anyway... Jumping back to it, so he's just chopped this woman up and put her in a suitcase and he can't lift it up. The old man turns up and kind of goes, yeah, I'll help you to uh, get rid of that body. Um, and it's all a bit strange. The old man kind of introduces himself as a grave digger and says that he'll take uh, take her out and find a nice place to, to bury her where it won't be bothered. And then we enter kind of H.P. Lovecraft territory. Um, it becomes very... Uh, eldritch for want of a better word so very mysterious very dark and otherworldly um, they're riding on this wagon to dispose of the body um, and they go through this city or town that comes up several times in the book and it's never fully explained but is really creepy and unsettling it was my favorite part in the book every time it came up he just describes it as having houses that have strange geometrical shapes and squat dark doorways that couldn't possibly uh, host human life um, and that there was kind of just this unsettling glow coming either from the roofs or the windows and each time he passes through the house through the town it gets kind of more disturbing the way he describes it but we never fully find out what it is or the symbolism and it's really interesting and as I say very Lovecraftian Made me think about, you know, Cthulhu's City of Riella with its non-Euclidean architecture and all that kind of stuff. Um, so think in a similar kind of vein. Anyway, 
Once we've got through past all the edgy necrophilia and chopping up and disposing of the body bits, then we get towards the middle of the book where there's a big, it's not a plot twist, but there's just a big shift. Um, we shift time zone, we sh shift location, and the narrator shifts into a completely different person for most of the second half of the book without really much explanation it just kind of happens um and that's the point when i had to just stop reading and go away and then come back and read the second half second half equally interesting um again a lot of the loose themes are tied together through symbolism and stuff like that um and there's all of these questions raised around reality and the nature of it and the, our natures of, of perception and stuff like that um in short, my my very quick theory on it is I remember um, uh, a film, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, uh, which is by Sergio Leone, and it's kind of a long gangster film. Um, and it, basically, the, this main character, Noodles, so it's played by Robert De Niro, is, is on this opium trip. Um, and we see him go into this opium den a few times in the house, uh, a few times in the film. And Sergio Leone said that the proper take of that film is that everything up to him going into the opium den happened, but then that's the last real scene we see and everything else is imagined because it tells his life story from childhood to adulthood to being an old man. Um, but um, So Sergio Leone explained it like this. I, I don't know about this because obviously I, I don't smoke opium, but apparently when you do, you hallucinate very vividly about real things that have happened to you in your past and also you hallucinate about things that may happen in the future. So the past is real, but the future is fictional in that film. Um, and I also think that that might be true of this book because we get descriptions of the character's childhood and marriage and things like that that all seem relatively, um, relatively normal. And the, the kind of very strange stuff all seems to happen after he's started doing the opium so I, I wonder if there's a similar uh a similar thing going on there but i haven't looked into that in a great great uh lot of detail so that ends my summary let's start talking about kind of what i liked about it um it's a 10 out of 10 book for me and i i really give 10s i didn't even give things fall apart by chinua achebe a 10 i gave that a 9 out of 10 and that's one of my favorite books so um, that tells you how much I liked this. It just did everything right um, that a horror story should do because it had enough of a coherent theme um, to be gripping and to lead you along and to be enthralling and enchanting and haunting. But there was enough mystery peppered in that you'd go away um with all of these theories and all of these thoughts about what actually happened, especially for me, my favourite part was the the strange geometrical um, town or city that he kept travelling back and forward through and what, what that was all about, and that sounded very interesting. Um, but it's great. The, the style of writing, the prose, is incredible. It's very intelligent. It's very kind of verbose but not quite to the point of 
HP Lovecraft were there's just huge words peppered in every sentence it becomes difficult to understand it's still accessible but it's very intelligently written it's very philosophical in places the narrator tells us a lot about his, his thoughts and feelings of of life and the world and the way the world works and sometimes that's very interesting there's parts of the scenes in there that are uncomfortable and controversial um obviously any reference to necrophilia is never great um hopefully you know everyone can agree that's a bit of an odd thing um but it was just a a great journey of a book i just i came away feeling like i'd really been taken on a trip through another world um and, and was the richer for it because um i learned a lot i learned a lot about iranian culture i learned a few iranian words um i learned a lot of different philosophical ideas to think about when that's what I like to do when I read. I like to learn. Yes, I want to be entertained. Yes, I want to be taken on a journey or an adventure. But I want to pick up knowledge. And if it's cultural knowledge from a, a culture that I otherwise don't know much about, more the better. That's you know that's what this podcast's all about. We want to get out there and learn and embrace other cultures and and just knowledge. You know, get get that knowledge. It's important. Um, you never never too old to stop learning. The more we can know about each other and understand each other the better a world we will be living in. Anyway, this is not a very spooky sign-off for a Halloween episode. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed this uh, episode. I really, really hope that it's inspired you to go and read this book because I, I honestly can't recommend it enough. I, I, I probably haven't even done it justice in this podcast, but you just have to take my word. It's, it's an incredibly well-written novel and, and really, really um, entertaining and interesting and captivating, and you should... You should definitely go out and give it a look. And there is Ron the cat eating his food in the background and ruining my sign off, but with little chomping noises. You okay, mate? He's he's having a nice time. Um, and yeah, so that's the end of the episode. Um, just before I go to me doing the sign off, um, I just want to say thanks to everybody that's uh, liked and subscribed to the various different social media pages. I've had a big uptick in that recently. I truly appreciate it. If you would care to leave me a lovely five star review telling me what you love about the podcast, that'd be that'd be great. The more people I can get listening, the more I can spread that knowledge. And now over to me with the sign off. If you've enjoyed this edition of Book Around, please consider following me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Book Around Podcast, on Instagram, at Book Around Podcast, or on Twitter, at Book Around Pod. Although, honestly, I don't really do anything on Twitter, so I don't know why you want to follow me there. And um, if you want to send me any feedback, uh, please feel free to get in touch. I have an email, which is bookaroundoutlook.com. Um, I am open to any feedback, good or bad. Tell me things you enjoyed. Tell me things you didn't enjoy. Give me tips. I'm still fairly new on starting podcasts. Or if you've got a particularly great book that you really would like to see me cover, please let me know about that and I will happily add that into my bank of things I'm reading. Um, hope you're all having a lovely spooky season, a lovely day. And yeah, until next time, book around and find out. <laughs>